Hi, folks. We are so glad that you're listening to Our Body Politic. If you have time, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other listeners find us, and we read your feedback. We'd also love it if you join financially in supporting the show, if you're able. You can find out more at ourbodypolitik.com slash donate. We are here for you, with you, and because of you. Thank you. This is Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. For the month of January, we're bringing you fresh voices from the podcasting world in our series, Our Body Politic Presents. This week, we bring you work by Translash Media. Amara Jones is the host and producer of the Translash podcast, and her work has won prestigious awards, including the Emmy and Peabody. In 2019, Jones chaired the United Nations' first ever high-level meeting on gender diversity. As America grapples with a multifaceted culture war, transgender rights have drawn political fire. There has been a cascade of legislation. Nearly 150 anti-trans bills in state houses across the country in 2021, for example. And more states are considering new legislation this year. The October release of Dave Chappelle's special, The Closer, brought transgender rights into focus from a different direction, culture. In his special, the comedian declared himself a TERF, which is shorthand for trans-exclusionary radical feminist. Other celebrities, including Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling, have made a point of publicly excluding trans women from the category of womanhood. But what happened with Dave Chappelle and his special wasn't just a culture issue. It was a labor issue, too. Translash host Imara Jones interviewed Zoe Schiffer of NBC, who was at The Verge at the time of the interview about how things played out for staff and the broader implications for society. Here's an excerpt from Translash's episode, Netflix v. The Trans Community. To delve even deeper into what's going on at Netflix, I invited one of the top reporters covering the Dave Chappelle saga and the company's ongoing mishandling of the situation. Zoe Schiffer is a senior reporter at The Verge and has broken story after story about this whole ordeal, making her the ideal person to help us pull back the curtain and get a look behind the scenes at Netflix. Zoe, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. First off, I'm wondering if you can give us a snapshot of Netflix. How big is it? What's its reach and how important has it become within the realm of entertainment in Hollywood? Netflix has this interesting place in both Silicon Valley and Hollywood. It has enormous sway in Hollywood in particular because it's producing a lot of the content that has become wildly popular in the past few years. And a lot of the major studios and the major talent are now really beholden to it. As a company, you know, it's 12,000 employees. It's one of the FANG companies. So it's like financially very, very successful. So it also has that kind of outsized control um, and sway in Silicon Valley. Content-wise, they've committed to releasing or initiating $6 billion worth of content next year, for example. So I think that also gives us a sense. I mean, that's just kind of unheard of for entertainment companies in the modern era. Yeah, absolutely. There's no question. I mean, I think this really speaks to why we haven't heard a lot of like the internal turmoil going on at Netflix, because employees are kind of in this position where if you're on the entertainment side of the house, you do not want to speak out against Netflix because you can get put on a list and it can become very, very difficult for you to get hired in Hollywood. We know that Hollywood operates in this way. And then if you're a tech employee, you're kind of aware of the extent to which 
tech companies will go to to stop employees from speaking out. You might have a little more insight into the NDA that you've signed. And those NDAs at Netflix are very, very strict. And so there's kind of this dual layer um, pressure to stop people from speaking out. You touched upon, for example, that if you're a person like Chappelle, you get, quote, boutique treatment, close quote, at Netflix with regard to content creation. What is their relationship with Dave Chappelle and why have they kind of crafted this entire area of doing comedic specials, which from time to time has been a landmine for the company. Yeah, absolutely. So they've said outright that the comedy specials that they produce are wildly popular with the audience. So this goes back to 2016. Netflix signed a deal with Dave Chappelle to produce six comedy specials for the platform. I think he was paid around $20 million for each of them. The company has said now that Sticks and Stones was Netflix's most popular comedy special to date. That was Chappelle's previous special before The Closer. And so I think we can kind of get a sense of why they're so committed to him as a performer and comedian. They've paid an enormous amount of money to Chappelle, much more than some of the other um, pieces of popular content that we know about that have been produced lately. And the content has been wildly successful with the audience. What do you think this says about Ted Sarandos and his leadership style? As someone who worked in tech before becoming a journalist, like it is not at all shocking to me that a for-profit organization is prioritizing profits. Like it's right in the structure what is going to be important to these people. And so while I think it's very admirable that employees are pushing the company to do better, I think that when Ted Sarandos comes out and the first thing he's kind of saying is, look, it cost us this much and it's popular with our audience, I think we kind of have our answers right before us. Fundamentally, as a labor reporter, what I'm interested in is what is the place that employees have in this conversation? And I actually think like the, the place the employees have in the Netflix controversy cannot be overstated. Because one thing that's really true is, while it might not be shocking that Netflix is prioritizing content that they've invested heavily in over their own employees, it's also true that they, like many other tech organizations, have positioned themselves as a very progressive employer. Mm-hmm. And as soon as we have a hypocrisy like that, we have a company that said, we care about you as a, as a person, bring your whole self to work, we have inclusive values, and then is falling down on those values, I think we have a story. And so the story here is that it becomes an unsafe place for trans employees to work if the content that is being produced from their perspective is directly harmful to their communities. Let's then turn to the employees. I think there are about 40 out trans employees at Netflix at this time, but the actual employee resource group or the Slack channel is well over a thousand employees. It was 400 when all of this started. And so I think that there are real ways, and, and we heard this firsthand at the walkout, employees saying, look, when I first came here, I was the only trans woman on my team. I would go to the trans employee resource group meetings and there were seven of us in the room. And now there's almost 50 and that feels much less lonely than it used to. So I feel like there's a way in which the community itself has grown, support has grown, and their influence has grown. They've been able, at least prior to this Dave Chappelle controversy, to have a bigger role in conversations around transphobic content. One out of 12 employees is now on that Slack channel. That's... It's impressive. (laughs) Astounding. Did it surprise you that none of the demands of the ERG with respect to changes that it wanted to see at Netflix 
didn't include removing uh, the content, for example, that most of it was focused on ways that the company needs to change with respect to how it operates, who it promotes, and the content that gets funded. Because they didn't make it about, as Dave Chappelle is claiming, silencing him, although I don't know how he's be silenced, but the $25 million check. And Sounds phenomenal. Would love to be silenced in a similar way. Indeed. Any At any point, yeah. please contact <laughs> me. Uh, anyone. Anyone. But did that surprise you with regards to how the employees are approaching this? I thought it was a very savvy PR move. I guess I'll say that. And I think that employees at these big tech organizations have kind of learned from one another. I think Netflix employees were like, look, this is already getting bogged down in this discussion around cancel culture and censorship. And we don't even want to touch that. We want to look at the systemic issues of why this content was able to air in the first place and what we're going to do to mitigate harm. And so I think that that was a very strategic decision to not get involved in this conversation around whether or not Dave Chappelle's special should stay up or come down, but really focus on kind of the larger issues at play. Yeah, I I think that that's right. And it also puts the onus right back on Ted Sarandos and the leadership to respond on that, right? Yeah, completely. I mean, I think this discussion around who's canceling who, which is just very unfruitful. Right now, we're having a really different conversation because the only person that's lost their job is a Netflix employee who's trans, who's Black, who's pregnant. And I think when we want to talk about cancellation, I mean, that's the person who's faced um, some real repercussions for after speaking out. And, you know, Dave Chappelle's special is still up and he's still getting standing ovations. You made the point that, and this is so true, that people in entertainment do not want to be labeled as difficult, do not want to be labeled as having called out their bosses in any way. Normally it is a career killer, not just a job killer. I think it's important for people to understand that, but it's a career killer. And we have seen, however, so many people being willing to take that risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to really look at who actually is speaking out. Because one thing we know for a fact is that the majority of Netflix employees who have spoken out are on the software side of the business. And talent who's spoken out are, you know, Hannah Gatsby being one, is it's like talent that has a lot of power and play in the industry. And so I don't know if we can look at this moment and say, wow, this is an enormous shift for Hollywood. Because I think if you're a tech employee, you do have that kind of assurance that you can probably get another tech job. And there is more of a culture of speaking out against wrongs and forcing your company to like stand up for its stated values. I don't know if that's true in Hollywood to this point. And I think that you have to really reach a certain level where you can kind of afford to speak out before you're willing to really do that. After all of this, do you think that Ted Sarandos realizes that he has a problem? I don't think they've given us any indication that they regret putting the special up. But I think that they've stuck very, very close to supporting the special and supporting Dave Chappelle. And while I have to imagine that they're rethinking how they give employees kind of a heads up of what content is coming down the pike and maybe rethinking some of their like PR strategy around this stuff, I personally have seen no indication so far that they're rethinking like their content strategy overall. That's interesting to me because I have had people who are producers and content creators in Hollywood reach out to me and tell me that they had either canceled meetings with them or had decided not to shop their content with them. 
this kind of gets back to the previous answer. Like if it becomes a business problem for Netflix, I think they will change their strategy. Zoe, thank you so much for coming on and for explaining all of the complexities around this issue with regards to tech and entertainment and labor issues. We'll continue to follow it. Thank you, Amara, so much for having me. And thank you for creating a platform for me and the other people involved to talk about these issues. Of course, of course. That was Zoe Schiffer, a senior reporter at The Verge. That was an excerpt from the Translash podcast with Amara Jones. Coming up next, more from the Translash podcast team with Amara Jones. Next, they dive into the origins of the movement to ban trans women from sports. Since I didn't really have the full experience, so to speak, I was pretending to be someone I wasn't in high school. It was just kind of sad to me that I never did it as Lindsay. Plus our roundtable, Sipping the Political Tea. That's on Our Body Politic. Welcome back to Our Body Politic. We continue Our Body Politic Presents with a limited-run series by Translash Media, The Anti-Trans Hate Machine, A Plot Against Equality. Host and producer Amara Jones and her team investigate how legislators across the country are pushing bills to restrict transgender rights. I was preparing for an interview one morning in February 2020. That interview was for a documentary that me and my team at Translash were producing called The Future of Trans. It's a fundamentally hopeful piece about what's ahead for trans people, what we can actually look forward to. As I was waiting for all of that to start, I do what I normally do. I was watching and scrolling through the news. Yeah, I do that. Try not to judge me because it's my job. And that's when I caught a glimpse, a glimpse of a potentially darker future in store for trans people. And that came in the form of a bill. And it was an anti-trans bill in Idaho. A lawmaker now introducing a bill that would ban transgender girls from playing on girls' high school and college sports teams. It was the second piece of hateful legislation that year. And I thought to myself, this has to be coming from somewhere. I want to find out where and what's going on. We wrapped up shooting the documentary two weeks later. And before I knew it, before we all knew it, COVID was upon us. Everything had shut down. And more and more anti-trans bills were popping up in state houses all across the country. We were facing more than one epidemic. So I pressed my team to keep going after the story. And we started making calls. I talked to experts and activists, many of them my friends, to ask what's happening and why now? They told me, girl, keep digging. So I did. To be honest, I got a little obsessed. And a year after following my gut, I am reeling from what we learned. The truth is that an enormous network of political action groups, billionaires, and religious extremists have all come together to form an operation that most of us have never heard of. Their goal is to use trans rights as a way to push a larger, crueler vision of the country. Now, you might not have heard of them, but we're all feeling the impact of their operation. 
More than 100 anti-trans bills have been introduced in over 30 state houses this year. And this anti-trans hate machine is just getting started. My name is Amara Jones. I'm a Black trans woman, a journalist, and the founder of Translash Media. Welcome to the anti-trans hate machine, a plot against equality. Now, I know that all of this sounds like something out of a comic book or science fiction. Like I'm describing Hydra from the Marvel world, or the rise of the Sith and Darth Vader in Star Wars. But there's more to this story than a conspiracy of frightening organizations hiding in plain sight. At the center of this are so many brave trans people. They're fighting all over the country. Even trans children are facing off against this machine. Their collective courage and the power of their humanity is the only thing which makes me feel hope that this machine can be stopped and disassembled. Let's start this story in a place where it began for me, Idaho. Idaho is where the anti-trans sports bills really gain traction. And it's the place where we have to go if we're going to understand a key part of the anti-trans hate machine. Come with me to Boise, March 2020. We on? We're on. Lawmakers have gathered for yet another hearing on a bill to bar trans girls from sports. It's called HB 500. I'd like to call a Senate State Affairs Committee to order. We're a little... The bill's sponsor is there. Thank you, Madam Chairman. I am Barbara Ehart, representative from District 33, which is Idaho Falls. And Madam Chairman, good committee, truly, I am grateful that you are allowing uh, myself to come before you to present this bill, which is incredibly necessary. Um, if I may, let me make it very clear that this bill is about one thing. It is about protecting opportunities and continued opportunities for girls and women in sports. Every girl deserves the chance to pursue her dreams, to excel in athletics. Forcing girls and women to compete against biological boys and men has often made us spectators in our own sport. What strikes me watching this is that she's passionate, and she totally buys into this nonsense. So much so, she names her bill the Fairness in Women's Sports Act. But there's someone else testifying at this hearing, too. A teenage girl... She's got blonde ringlets and is wearing her high school cross-country t-shirt. She's super nervous. If you could not guess already, I am in fact a transgender girl and an athlete. I ran cross-country and track in high school. This issue is so important to me because running is such a core part of who I am. It keeps me fit. It keeps me motivated in life in general. It keeps me alive. Her name is Lindsay Hecox. She's a college first year. She's one of the bravest, most earnest young people I've ever seen. It's the first day she'll face off against the anti-trans hate machine. She doesn't know it yet, but this is just the start of a long fight. Lindsay came to Idaho from California to go to college and to live as the young woman she always knew she was. And a big part of her dream was to run alongside other women on the cross-country team. Lindsay had started to transition in the summer between high school and college. Can you talk a little bit about why you wanted to join the team? Running by yourself isn't as fun as running with a team, especially with friends, and you both push each other to be the best athlete possible. I was missing that aspect, especially since I didn't really have 
the full experience, so to speak. I was pretending to be someone I wasn't in high school. It was just kind of sad to me that I never did it as Lindsay. Now, I've spent hours talking to Lindsay. And what sticks with me after every conversation is just how pure and simple her motivations are. She just wants to run and feel good about her body and have friends. Who's opposed to that? And why would banning girls like Lindsay be a hill that lawmakers want to die on? Especially when the entire premise of the bill is founded on assumptions that aren't based in any kind of evidence at all. You're listening to Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea, and this week we continue to bring you fresh content for our Our Body Politic Presents series. Right now you're hearing an excerpt from a special limited-run series by Translash Media, The Anti-Trans Hate Machine, A Plot Against Equality. That's hosted and produced by Amara Jones. Now, I know this is going to be a little wonky, but the people whose job it is to look at the science and decide what's fair say that once trans women reach the same hormone levels as cis women, that there's no difference in athletic performance. The National Collegiate Athletic Association, USA Track and Field, and the International Olympic Committee all say that trans women can compete and that it doesn't hurt cis women. So it's not surprising that a lot of lawmakers in Idaho had concerns about HB 500. I would ask that we vote against this. It is singling out folks and putting them on the margin even farther. And that that's just not the Idaho way. At least I hope not. Moreover, people in Idaho weren't clamoring for anti-trans laws. Richie Epink is with the ACLU of Idaho. And he says many Idahoans were deeply uncomfortable with the legislation. Idaho's largest employers, Chobani, HP, Micron, Cliff Bar, came out against the bill. Idaho doctors, Idaho counselors... Idaho School Boards Association, students, including student athletes in Idaho, they were all calling the governor's office. They were all urging the governor to veto this bill. Richie says it just didn't make sense that the bill was still moving through the state legislature. It can't be explained by what Idahoans want or by problems in Idaho. It's something else. There was something bigger at work here than the voices of the people of Idaho. There had to be. Because even the Idaho Attorney General had issued a formal opinion to say that HB 500 is likely to be found unconstitutional by the courts. So from wavering lawmakers to corporations to citizens to the state's Attorney General, all were saying, slow down, don't do this. But the sponsor of the bill, Representative Barbara Ehart and her allies were determined to ram it through. Her co-sponsor in the Senate began reassuring lawmakers that there's no reason to worry about the fallout because Richie was right. There was something else going on. I do want you to know that there is a third party group that has been working with us on this bill and will be responsible for any legal defense fees. And this third party group stayed involved and helped get the word out about it. With this push, HB 500 passes. Governor Brad Little signs it less than a month after Lindsay Hecox stood up and told her story at the state capitol. However, the passage of the Fairness in Women's Sports Act raised an important question. Who is this outside group who helped push the bill over the finish line? So 
my team and I started reaching out to Barbara Ehart, the person behind the bill, because she would know. We called, we sent emails, and we left voice messages. We even slid into her DMs. Yeah, I know. But I had to have an answer. Then one day, we tried calling her again. For what I thought was the last chance. It was a long shot. But this time she picks up and says, sure, I'll talk to you. Um, Representative Earhart? Earhart, uh-huh. Earhart. Oh, I, I beg your pardon. I didn't know how much time I was going to have, so I jump right in. And I ask her, who helped you? As you ask that question, can I give a little bit longer I th- answer? I think that, that we... Okay? No, I think that we want to hear as fulsome of an answer on each of the questions okay. that I have. So I would encourage you to stretch your legs if you if you wanted to do that. Okay. Okay. Thank you. I set forth trying to figure out how to how to do this. Just kept hitting roadblocks and had reached out to quite a few pro-family groups. And literally, they were telling me we couldn't go forward. Let me unpack how this normally works. When... A state lawmaker wants to draft a bill, especially a relatively new lawmaker like Barbara. They rely on their staff. They rely on their legislative services office, or they reach out to nonprofits in their state for help. But Barbara made a beeline to national conservative organizations outside of Idaho for help. I felt kind of like I'd hit an impasse, and that's actually when I had reached out to Alliance Defending Freedom. Well, at least now, we have the name of that outside group, Alliance Defending Freedom, or as they're commonly known, ADF. So Barbara says she tells them that she wants to ban trans girls from sports in Idaho and needs their help. ADF says, yes, we can do this. And then they decided that they were going to get more serious about this legislation. And then we completely changed it. And this is where you see what, of course, many are using now in these other states. As I'm hearing this, I'm really glad that Barbara can't see my face because it's totally cracked. And everybody who knows me knows I can't mask my surprise. We've been investigating how the anti-trans hate machine works for months. And within minutes, she's just told me about a big piece of the whole plan. She's saying that ADF not only basically wrote the Idaho bill, but that it's become the prototype for all of those other anti-trans sports bills that are popping up all over the country. Now, my jaw is also on the floor because ADF likes to mask its role. We reached out to them multiple times, like multiple, and no one would talk to us. They're basically the legal arm of the entire right-wing Christian values movement in this country. They want an extreme interpretation of the Bible to be enshrined in every aspect of American law. In their drive to do so, ADF goes far beyond the traditional Christian fundamentalism that you might have heard of, well, all your entire life. This is not your grandmother's Christian fundamentalism. This is way beyond that. In fact, the Southern Poverty Law Center has designated ADF as a hate group. That puts ADF, with its innocuous-sounding name, Alliance of Hidden Freedom, in the same category as the Ku Klux Klan and neo-Nazis. ADF's extremist hate is particularly directed at LGBTQ people, but rather than burning crosses or carrying tiki torches, they weaponize the law. 
How do they do it? They sue governments claiming religious liberty as a reason to discriminate. And y'all should know that they've been highly effective, taking big-name cases like Masterpiece Cake Shop and Hobby Lobby all the way to the Supreme Court and winning them. They also pushed state legislatures to legalize discrimination. ADF wrote the model bathroom bill that a bunch of states used in 2016 to try to tell trans people where to pee. Now they're pushing model legislation, sound familiar, to ban trans people from playing sports. The anti-trans hate machine just keeps doing the same thing over and over. We cannot continue to pretend that allowing males to compete in the girls' category does anything less than spell the end of women's sports. That's Christina Holcomb. She's a lawyer with ADF and a leading architect of their strategy. Regardless of where we stand on a variety of issues, I hope we can all agree that turning women's sports into a co-ed free-for-all simply is not a plausible solution for the cultural and the social challenges that we're addressing. When our schools and our society tries to ignore biological reality, people get hurt. Girls get hurt. But ADF is trying to hurt girls. Girls like Lindsay Hecox. Even though Idaho's HB 500 has passed into law, Lindsay keeps doing her part. She keeps speaking out and keeps going to protest. At the same time, activists in her circle start working on a plan to bring a lawsuit. They want to hold the state accountable for discriminating against trans girls. In the latest sign of her bravery, Lindsay raises her hand to be the sole plaintiff in the case. And there's a part of this where it seems like your motivation to get involved was truly self-directed. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that overall, and if there was a specific moment where you were like, I have to do something. I don't really feel like there was much of a choice in the matter. I, I guess I could have potentially declined, but that would have felt terrible for me. I, I wanted to do something for my community, and this is a huge thing. Like most trans people never get the opportunity to fight anti-trans politicians and legislature. So I don't know why would I, why would I turn it down? Lindsay's this young woman who just wants to run and be one of the girls. But here she is putting her life on the line and standing up because it's the right thing to do. She doesn't want anyone else to have to endure this. And it's a profound thing to witness. That was an excerpt from the podcast, The Anti-Trans Hate Machine, A Plot Against Equality, a special limited-run podcast by Translash Media. You can hear the rest of the episode and learn about how Lindsay's legal fight to compete with other girls turns out, plus the anti-Black origins of the sports ban. Tune in to The Anti-Trans Hate Machine wherever you listen to podcasts. This series was produced by Translash Media with creator and host Imara Jones. Her team includes Oliver Ash Klein, Josephine J. McAuliffe, Callie Wright, Alexander Charles Adams, Montana Thomas, Annie Ming, Tyler Wilson, Daniela Capistrano, and Yannick Ike Mirko. Coming up next, our weekly roundtable Sippin' the Political Tea, featuring Aaron Haynes of the 19th and Amara Jones of Translash. There's cultural violence against um, Black trans people. There's political violence against Black trans people. There's policy violence against Black trans people. You're listening to Our Body Politic. 
Each week on the show, we bring you a roundtable called Sippin' the Political Tea. And joining me this week is Imara Jones, founder and CEO of Translash Media. You have been hearing in the earlier parts of the show, Translash on Our Body Politic Presents. Welcome, Imara. Hello. Thanks for having me. And Our Body Politic contributor, Aaron Haynes, editor-at-large at the 19th. Hey, Aaron. Farai, good to be with you as always. Well, let's begin this week's discussion uh, talking about the rise of anti-trans legislation. And Aaron, take it from here. Thank you so much, Farai. I'm glad to be starting off this topic, uh, which is very important to us at the 19th. Our reporter, Orion Rumler, has been doing such great work around this. So advocates are predicting that 2022 could bring a record-breaking number of anti-LGBTQ plus legislation. Uh, in 2021, there were already approximately 147 anti-trans bills uh, in state houses across the country, and that was up from roughly 79 in 2020. Uh, already in just the first week of 2022, at least seven states proposed laws that were targeting transgender young people. As we heard earlier in the show, Translash has been investigating the anti-trans movement. Amara, what is driving this uptick in discriminatory legislation? Well, it's a part of almost a decade-long plan by the right to bring us to this moment. For them, they see trans rights as an essential part of their strategy to continue to activate and engage their voters. They see it as an essential part of keeping the apparatus and infrastructure that they've built for the abortion movement, also focused on gender, as you know, engaged after what they perceive to be their coming win on Roe versus Wade. So it gives that apparatus, it gives that machine, it gives that money-making operation a focus. And thirdly, they believe that it is a way to cleave and to destroy um, the progressive coalition on the left. And I think that one of the things that we have to understand about this is that this is a central part of their strategy moving forward. So I believe that we're just at the beginning of the formalized backlash against transgender people and communities legally in this country. Um, As you noted, in 2020, there were 70. In 2019, there were just a handful of bills. Farai, Amar is already starting to unpack some of this, but how would you say that this anti-trans legislation and this movement fits into the bigger picture of politics today? I think that one thing that a lot of people understand now that they didn't understand in, say, fall 2015, when the uh, 2016 presidential elections cycle started is that culture trumps, you know, logic, culture trumps facts. Culture war is a much more dynamic force in American politics than anything that you can link to traditional forms of logic. And I think what's happening here is that anti-transgender legislation is being rolled up with anti-so-called critical race theory uh, legislation because it's not actually about critical race theory and and anti-vax sentiment in many cases into this omnibus. We are imperiled. We need to do everything we can to fight against change. And it really is a, a cosmic clash of, you know, how different parts of society want to shape the future of America and the world. And I mean, I've spent years, like literally 25 years, reading across the ideological spectrum, talking to people across the ideological spectrum. And I saw this kind of fog of culture war rolling in starting in 2015. People didn't take it seriously in the media many times because people assumed 
that human beings would make logical decisions. I'm like, since when? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like this yeah. is really about a divide and conquer strategy for saying for 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 making people activate their fear centers, what's sometimes called the lizard brain, you know, the fight or flight instincts. And and those are useful. Those instincts are useful, but, you know, perhaps more useful under immediate life-threatening situations than in the context of building a future. Amara, on Translash, you talk about the issues, but you also do something that, that we do at the 19th, which is really talk about who your guests are and their journeys to becoming their true selves, right? We already know that transgendered people, especially trans women of color, experience a disproportionate amount of violence. But now we are having kind of this broader conversation because of the rise of this anti-trans legislation about uh, just the idea that, that their identity is becoming increasingly political. So uh, how would transgender people that you've talked to, what are they saying to you about how they're coping with being not just a target of the physical violence that I think has gotten a lot of attention recently, a lot more attention, but also the political hate? Mm -hmm. I think that the most important thing to underscore here is that all forms of violence work together. So the reason why Black trans women are at the center of the epidemic of violence against trans people in the United States, by the way, the United States has more murders of trans people than any other country on the planet except for Brazil and Mexico, um, is that that the physical violence against us is a manifestation of the interlocking failures of other institutions in society that are that then constitute violence. So what do I mean? There's cultural violence against um, black trans people. There's political violence against black trans people. There's policy violence against black trans people. And so when you have other forms of violence that are the predicate um, and set the stage for it, then the physical violence is a natural outcome and a manifestation of those other forms of violence that start much earlier. I think that the way that people are navigating it is, in many ways, strengthening community, forming institutions like we did at Translash, but we're not the only one, Black Trans Femmes in the Arts, Black Trans Travel Fund. There are all these other institutions that have been created in this moment where we are realizing that we need sort of our own set of institutions to be able to talk to each other and to the broader world, strengthening mutual aid, um, which is a very traditional way that we're moving forward, and finding ways to breakthrough in a moment of extreme pressure. In many ways, you know, I think that what's happening amongst trans communities and black trans communities in particular is analogous to sort of the creative burst that came forward in the 60s and the 70s under very similar circumstances. And also during the Harlem um, Renaissance, you know, it's kind of a very similar type of time where there's extreme violence and extreme creativity. And I think that the creativity in this moment is what we're using to get through. Wow, what a hopeful way to think about this. I, I have to ask, I mean, if I can just stick with this for a moment, because, you know, we're seeing kind of this rise in, in uh, political backlash against against uh, the trans community happening in the midst of this pandemic, right, where we know uh, that folks in the LGBT community in particular have felt more vulnerable, have been, uh, you know, m more isolated as we all have. What have been some of the, I guess, kind of challenges you've had to overcome to create just that kind of community and helping and, and folks just connecting with each other in this pandemic environment? Yeah, I think that the 
biggest challenge is in creating sort of institutions that we have or like what everyone has is for people to take us seriously and for people to actually believe that like we exist and we have community and we have perspectives and we are deserving of the same type of um, focus and engagement and respect um, and investment as other communities. I think that that's an ongoing challenge for us. I think that's layered on top of all of the other challenges. The pandemic has been terrible for trans people in terms of um, what it did for people who are not part of the traditional economy in many ways, which trans people are. What it's done in terms of trans people facing extreme domestic violence. People haven't been able to leave their houses. They're under control of their roommates or hostile families. I mean, also just the fear that trans people have in terms of going to the hospital if you do get COVID or do get sick. So there are lots of things. But at the same time, you know, in the middle of the pandemic, we had the largest gathering in support of trans rights in the history of the United States occur at the Brooklyn Museum in the summer of 2020 with the Brooklyn Liberation March. So that's what I mean, where there's this extreme pressure and extreme pain, and at the same time, extreme creativity that is allowing us to um, break through and recognize our own our own power. Farai, you brought up bodily autonomy, and I want to circle back to that because we just had a long conversation on a recent roundtable about that very issue. Is bodily autonomy part of this conversation? Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, I was raised Catholic and in a ideologically mixed family with some conservatives and some progressives. And we one Thanksgiving had, you know, uh, a debate about transgender issues. And I learned so much from those, you know, previous years at the the family table. Like every Thanksgiving, we would discuss something, including ab- abortion. And in the end, with our abortion discussion, I found out that all of my uncles, regardless of whether they were liberal or conservative, did not support abortion access. And all of my female relatives regardless of, again, social conservatism or or progressive identification, supported abortion access. And I think that sometimes bodily autonomy questions, whether it's abortion or transgender, break down on how do you understand the harms of limiting someone's ability to control their own body? And sometimes it really is about like proximity to harm. I think a lot of the ways that we can understand uh, debates in America are people who have proximity to certain harms pay more attention to them. So again, when you get to the midterms, I think that proximity to harm is really a framework worth evaluating because the way that transgender issues are being framed by people who are anti-trans is often that, okay, your proximity to harm is that your kid will be forced to be transgender by some crusading activist or demonic school system. And that proximity to harm is being framed in a way that really triggers people. At the same time, of course, people who are transgender or who support transgender rights are also looking through a proximity to harm framework. So that is integral to the midterms and to politics moving forward. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, proximity to harm, but also proximity to perceived harm exactly. is, is, 100%. is going to be driving this, this conversation in 2022 and I think beyond. You're listening to Sipping the Political Tea on Our Body Politic. I'm Erin Haynes, editor-at-large for the 19th, 
talking anti-trans legislation that is sweeping state houses and what this emerging issue means for the midterms and beyond. I'm joined by Mara Jones, founder and CEO of Translash Media and our fearless leader for Rachidea. If you're just joining us, you can catch the whole conversation on our podcast. Please look for Our Body Politic wherever you listen to podcasts. Amar, were you going to add to that? Yeah, I was just going to say that I think that this link between um, body autonomy, abortion rights, um, trans issues, issues around gender identity and gender is one that for the right wing they see as one fight. And what's fascinating is progressives, in quotes, see them as separate, right? There's trans people, there's gender, uh, and there's women. So there's trans people, there's women, and then there's abortion. And just because you're a woman doesn't mean you have to support abortion. There are all these things that, that are in conversation on our side. But for them, it's really one one fight and one battle um, over the ability to be able to perpetuate white Christian supremacy. And I think that it's one of the things that people may not be aware of, um, that for them, this is one fight, and they take it very, very, very seriously. I want to shift to uh, a positive conversation around bodily autonomy because uh, this January, stick with me, marks the 50th anniversary of Shirley Chisholm's groundbreaking run for president. Talk about somebody that had bodily autonomy. First black congresswoman in history, and then she became the first black person to seek the presidential nomination from a major party. Her slogan was unbought and unbossed. Uh, 50 years later, Farai, how are you thinking about black female leadership, both in terms of really what's empowering black women to step forward and the obstacles that still need to be overcome, not for not only for us to have a seat at the table, but really for us to build that table. Well, again, I feel like, you know, all I'm doing is family story day. I my grandmother was an employment whistleblower. And one of the things that she found, you know, a discrimination whistleblower, one of the things she found was that there were plenty of black people who didn't support her, just like there were white people who didn't support her. And that comes to mind as I think about Shirley Chisholm, because she was not heavily supported by a lot of different black lawmakers who were her peers. She was a sitting member of Congress, and there were people who did shady back deals to try to keep her from standing up for president. And she was not traditionally beautiful. She was not, um, you know, kind of one of the shiny and anointed people in some people's minds. And she stood for a vision of an America that, frankly, had that vision been achieved, I would probably feel like this nation was on better footing today. And I just think about the power of her vision, the power of her voice and her courageousness Mm -hmm. in spite of, as she constantly said, being dismissed by so many people um, who looked like her and didn't look like her and were of her gender and not of her gender. I think that we have to understand that Shirley Chisholm acted intersectionally before intersectional became coined as a term almost um, a generation later. That is to say that we have to remember that she was one of the founders of the National Women's Political Caucus, which worked to fight for the Equal Rights Amendment and for equality across the board. It was also radical in that it also included lesbian women, people who were out and open at the time. And I think that we have to just remember that she, in many ways, represented the fulfillment of American democracy, even though um, that's never been the way that she's been framed and certainly wasn't the way that she was um, perceived at the time. 
you know, and Shirley Chisholm's legacy just con- it continues to show up even in our politics today. I mean, we know that, that Vice President Harris, when she ran for president in 2020, was inspired by Shirley Chisholm's historic presidential run in 1972. Her campaign colors were the same colors as Shirley Chisholm's. And you also had Barbara Lee, who got her start in politics working on Shirley Chisholm's 1972 run inspired as a young woman in Southern California to really get into that fight. And the list goes on and on. Erin, you know, just so grateful for everything that you have done and continue to do to map these intersections of how Black women's leadership is connected over time. And I also want to give a shout out to the film by Shala Lynch, um, Chisholm 72, Unbought and Unbossed. And You know, what a great conversation. So grateful to be with you both. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful to be with you both um, and to finally virtually meet Erin after feeling like I know her after seeing her so many times. Well, Amara, we are absolutely connected now, so you won't be uh, able to get rid of me. Uh, Look at us. We're all on the Chisholm Trail, walking out of here together. A great way to end this week. So, Farah, thanks for having me again. And thanks, Aaron, for hosting. So we have been speaking with Aaron Haynes, Our Body Politic contributor and editor-at-large at the 19th, and Amara Jones, CEO of Translash Media and host of the Translash podcast. Thanks for listening to Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by Diaspora Farms. I'm the executive producer and host, Farai Chidea. Bridget McAllister is our booker and producer. Emily J. Daly and Bianca Martin are our producers. Our associate producer is Natina Bean. Production and editing services are by Clean Cuts at Three C's. Today's episode was produced by Lauren Schild. Adam Runer, Rock Lee, and Archie Moore are sound engineers. We'd also like to thank the Translash Media Podcast, the Anti-Trans Hate Machine, A Plot Against Equality, and the Translash Podcast. Those are both by Amara Jones, the creator and host, and her team includes Oliver Ash Klein, Josephine J. McAuliffe, Callie Wright, Alexander Charles Adams, Montana Thomas, Annie Ning, Tyler Wilson, Daniela Capistrano, and Yannick Ike Mirko. You can find the Translash podcast and the Anti-Trans Hate Machine wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can follow at Translash Media on Insta and Twitter. This program is produced with support from Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Democracy Fund, the Harnish Foundation, Compton Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Be Me Community, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, and from generous contributions from listeners like you. 